Well, after a long summer, we are finishing our study of God's man named Elijah. So you can be opening your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 2. We'll be reading there in just a moment one of the most incredible stories in all of human literature about a time when there was visible evidence that a man went to heaven. Now, we believe that believers in Jesus go to heaven and we do so by faith. But imagine having physical evidence, tangible physical evidence that somebody went to heaven. Have you ever heard of such a... I've only heard of one story like that. It was this old man. He was at a graveside service for his wife. And just as the preacher finished the prayer, there was this huge thunderclap and there was a big bolt of lightning. And the old man looked at the preacher and said, well, she made it. Now, except for that, I don't know, but of two stories of actual physical evidence that somebody went to heaven and they're both in the Bible. Of course, the first and best known is the ascension of Jesus as the apostles witnessed him go to heaven. And the second is Elijah's whirlwind finish. Now, I'm just going to say right now, I intend for this sermon to be more uplifting than the last three. And I use that word on purpose. You remember that after Jonathan's series in July, I came back to wrap up Elijah. And the first week back, I preached on depression. And the second week back, I preached on judgment. And the third week back, I preached on demons and the occult. And I know you're wondering, what kind of break did he have? But we're going to preach today on the hope of heaven. And I think you're going to be encouraged. You know, usually when a storyteller tells a great story, he builds tension as you wonder how the story is going to conclude. And you don't know how it's going to finish Until you get to the end. But every now and then, a storyteller will reverse that. And he will tell you the end at the start. Because sometimes stories are even better when you know how it finishes at the beginning. This is one of those stories. Look at the very first verse of chapter 2. Of Second Kings. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, let's stop right there. This is how the story starts. Elijah is about to go to heaven. He's going to pass death and transition straight to God's realm in a whirlwind. That's how the story starts. And it shapes the rest of what we read. So, the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. And Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, but do not speak of it. 
Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, but do not speak of it. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Now 50 men of the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left. And the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me. What can I do for you before I am taken from you? And Elisha replied, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet, if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, not. Now, right off the bat, this is a strange story. Because we start the story with the knowledge that the main character knows he is spending his last day on earth. Think about that. Because everybody spends a last day on earth, but hardly anybody knows which day is their last. Maybe if you're on death row, you know, or maybe if you're very, very sick, you may have a premonition. But the fact of the matter is, most of us are going to wake up one morning and have no idea it is the last time we are ever going to do that. Most of us are not going to know the day that is our last day. What if you did? If you knew you were living your last day, how would you spend it? Is there anything about your life right now you would want to change if you knew today was your last day? See, Elijah did know. And he knew how to spend the day because evidently God directed him to spend it encouraging young prophets. There were in Gilgal, in Bethel, in Jericho, schools of prophets. Evidently they were founded by Samuel and probably Elijah was a frequent guest lecturer. Evidently he spent a lot of his ministry in his last years with these young prophets going to these schools and no doubt... This day particularly because everybody seems to know it's his last day. He spends it encouraging them to continue the work of renewal he had begun. But it's very obvious there's one young prophet in particular that he hopes will be his successor as the leader of the revival he has launched. I think maybe that's why he keeps asking Elisha to stay. 
I think maybe he's testing his tenacity. Do you have the kind of resolve it is going to take to continue the work I started? And it's why he asked him a final request. He says to his young apprentice, I know I'm about to leave. You know I'm about to leave. All the prophets know I'm about to leave. So if you ever had a last request, this is the time to ask it. What can I do for you? And the young prophet looked at his master and said, I want a double portion of your spirit. And every Hebrew knew exactly what he was saying. Because under the law of Moses, if a man had two sons, the first son would get a double share of the inheritance because it was his duty to take care of the aging parents. So what he's saying is, I want to be your spiritual heir. I want to be your son in the faith. I want to be the one that takes up the mantle and continues your life's work. Now, Elijah knew that decision was ultimately up to God. But you know he's got to be pleased by the request. So he says, if you see me. When I'm taken up, it will be yours. And I think from that point, Elisha stayed so close to Elijah, it was like he was wearing his clothes. And look at the next verse. How on earth do you preach this? As they were walking along and talking together, and wouldn't you like to know what they were talking about? What do you talk about when you know any second God is coming to pick you up? As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. And then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them apart. Isn't it interesting how much of Elijah's ministry has been associated with fire? We've seen this all through his life. In the greatest moment of his ministry on Mount Carmel, taking on the prophets of Baal, he called down fire from heaven. We saw last week when the Baalite soldiers from Ahaziah came out to arrest him, not once but twice, fire came down from heaven to affirm Elijah. And so how is he going to leave the earth? Well, a horse and chariot of fire show up. Now, I almost hate to bring this up. Because I don't want to ruin your affection for some of your favorite spirituals. But please notice, the text does not say he went to heaven in a chariot of fire. He went to heaven in a whirlwind. The horses and chariot of fire separated Elijah from Elisha. And probably they were his escort as he went up to heaven in the whirlwind. You see... Elijah had to be thinking, oh God, thank you 
for not answering my prayer years ago under the broom tree when I wanted to die because this is so much cooler. See, one of the things when we live our last day and we meet our God that we're going to be grateful for is all the foolish prayers we prayed through our life that God had the grace not to answer because he had something better in mind. And here is Elijah, the man of God, being escorted by angels in a whirlwind going to heaven. His deepest yearning has been fulfilled. But what about Elisha's? Yearning. What about Elisha's prayer? Well, let's finish the story and read. He picked up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And then he took the cloak that had fallen from him and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. And when he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And so God made Elisha's appointment as Elijah's successor, evident to everybody. And I believe he did so because that demonstration of power was declaring to all of Israel that Israel's future doesn't depend on Elijah. Yes, Elijah was a man of God, but Israel's future didn't depend on the man of God. It depended on the God of the man. And even though Elijah is gone, the God of Elijah is still here. Maybe that's why he took Elijah when he did. See, there's nothing in this text that says Elijah was old and frail and worn out. Nothing. It's like Moses when God took him. He was 120 years old, so we assume he must have been worn out. But the Bible says he wasn't worn out. In fact, Here's a man that is able to climb a 5,000-foot mountain to go meet God. And so why did God take Elijah if he was still able to do a lot more? I've always been encouraged by a verse in Acts 13. Paul preaching says, When David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. That's what God does. He lets you serve the purpose for which you were born, and then he takes you home. And Elijah had served God's purpose for his life. His courage and his resolve had broken the back of Baalism, which had been the greatest threat to the worship of God in Israel's history. In fact, if you will read the next chapter, Ahab's next son is named Joram. Now, he's still a wicked boy, but he does something very significant. He takes the statue of Baal in the city of Samaria and tears it down. It was a repudiation of the religion of his mother and father. And Baalism would never again threaten Israel as becoming the state religion. This is what God used Elijah to do. It was the purpose of his life. And maybe that's why his spirit was so calm on his last day. You notice that. It's the last day of his life and he knows it. 
And he's not anxious and he's not fretting. He's calm. He's just doing his ministry, seeing his friends because he knew he had spent his life doing what mattered. And Elijah knew that his finish was not his end. It's one of my favorite stories. And from it, I think we can glean several thoughts that are uplifting, pun intended. And the very first is what we're just talking about. You see, this story tells us at no time is God's kingdom hindered by a departure. When a man or woman of God leaves or dies, nothing of God leaves or dies. God is never frustrated. Saying, oh my, what am I going to do now that they're gone? The God of men is always raising up the next man of God. Now, I find that first to be a source of great comfort. I'm going to miss Jonathan, but I'm not worried because the next Jonathan is about to be revealed by the Lord. I think about the great, great elders who were elders when I came to this church. They're all now, some with the Lord, some in different roles. A new eldership is here. The work of the Lord goes on. Nothing of God leaves or dies when a man or woman of God leaves or dies. And I find that to be very encouraging. But I also find it to be very humbling. Because it tells me none of us are indispensable to the agenda of of God. God taught me that lesson very shortly after I moved here some time ago. My first 11 years as a preacher, I preached for a church in Abilene. It was called the Southern Hills Church. That church in the 11 years I was there had some amazing things happen. We grew from about 400 people to about 1,600 people. We added a bunch of new ministries. We started a small group ministry that was huge. We built a new thousand seat auditorium. It was an awesome 11 years. Now, I'm back here now. I've only been gone less than two years. I called the new preacher at Southern Hills. He was out. So I said, well, will you just tell him to call Rick Ashley? And the secretary said, I'd be happy to. Now, can you please spell that last name? (laughs) Spell my name? You're sitting in the office I built and you want me to spell my name? And it was, I think... A very clear word from God to me. It's not and never has been about you. This is my church. You see, the Bible says, Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever. Now watch this next phrase. And His faithfulness continues to each generation. And so the challenge for each generation is to march boldly into the future instead of trying to live back in the fasts when brother so-and-so was the preacher, when so-and-so was the leader, when so-and-so was in charge. We're not to live in the past. God's faithfulness is new and real to this generation. So every generation has to find out anew the power of God for their day. The God that could divide the water when Elijah had the mantle is the same God that can divide the water today. Years ago, in my very first time to go to a mission field, I was in South America for several weeks. 
And the Christians there taught me a phrase, and I'll probably butcher the pronunciation, but the phrase was, La obra es del Señor. And it means, the work is the Lord's. That's a good word. The work has always been, the work will always be the Lord's. So the, it never ends just because some workers do. See, at no time is God's kingdom hindered by a departure. But at all times, because we know departures happen, at all times we should live with the end in view. And most people don't know how to do this. Because our culture teaches us not to do this. Our culture is busy trying to get us to think about how we can forestall death instead of prepare for it. And so we buy our exercise machines and we take our vitamins and we do everything we can from plastic surgery to new hair color to tell ourselves that death isn't a reality. That's why I like the bumper sticker I saw the other day. It said, eat well, stay fit, and die anyway. I believe one of the most important ministries of the church is to prepare people to die well. You can learn a lot about a church by its architecture. And so uh, many of you have been to New England and you've seen the old Puritan churches and buildings built there in the 16 and 1700s. Notice this about them. Most of them will have right around the church, right on the grounds, a cemetery. And they will not have stained glass. They will have clear glass. Do you know why they did that? So the preacher could stand up, look at his people, while outside he sees graves. Because they said his job is to get the people he's preaching to ready for the day they're going to be there. To teach them To live and die well. The Bible says, Psalm 90, verse 12, Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That same verse, the New Century Version says, Teach us how short our lives really are, so that we may be wise. See, our culture does not know how to teach people to measure their days. So consequently, we live in a world of dropped batons. We'll give some thought to our financial legacy. We'll buy some insurance, maybe make a will or set up a trust for our children. But we give hardly any thought to our faith legacy. But not Elijah. You see, we read this story and we think the coolest thing is that he left in a whirlwind. I think God thought the coolest thing was that he left behind scores of young prophets prepared to keep his work going. I think this explains the calmness of his last day. He knew He had a faith legacy secure. 
You want to live your life so that nothing has to change if you find out it's your last day. Now that's worth hearing again. You want to live your life so that if you find out it's your last day, you don't have to panic. You don't have to fret. Because your legacy is secure. You did what mattered with your life. But living on purpose demands seeing with some focus. Here's the third thought in this story. I think it's critical in these times that we need increased spiritual vision. Elisha was sincere. He wanted to be Elijah's successor. But it didn't depend on his passion. It depended on his vision. Elijah said, if you see me when I am taken from you. I think that's what Elisha was asking for. The capacity to see by faith. Like Elijah had. To see the world through the lens of God like Elijah had done. It's a capacity he got and it's a capacity he kept. Because from this day forward, he lived his life with increased spiritual vision. So just a few chapters later, he's in a city with his servant. And the enemies of God surround the city to capture Elisha. And the servant wakes up and he sees the enemies all around the city. And he is afraid. Look at what happens in chapter 6. It says, don't be afraid, Elisha answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, oh Lord, open his eyes. Wait a second. His eyes are open. He has physical eyesight. That's not what he's praying. He's praying, Lord, open his eyes to the spiritual dimension. To the world where reality is eternal. Help him see your world, God. Open his eyes. And the next verse says, so the Lord opened the servant's eyes. And he looked and he saw the hills full of what? Horses and chariots of fire. All around Elisha. Elisha saw the horses and chariots for the rest of his life. What do you want a double portion of? If you could ask God to give you one thing today, what would you ask for? I would ask for better spiritual vision. I don't believe God can use any man greatly if that man does not see clearly. I want to be like Moses. The Bible says about him in Hebrews 11 that he was able to persevere because he, and this is a contradiction in terms, unless you understand spiritually, he saw him who was invisible. And that kind of insight comes from prayer. You have to ask for it like Elisha did. If you will study the prayers of Paul, was Paul would pray for new Christians He didn't do what we do. He didn't pray a whole lot about that they would get well or that all their problems would go away. But he would consistently pray for wisdom and discernment 
and spiritual vision. Look, for example, to Ephesians 1. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He's called you. There's a city in Spain called Valladolid. And they have a huge statue to their favorite son, Christopher Columbus. And one interesting part of that statue is a lion with a paw. And that paw is knocking a word off of a banner. The banner is written in Latin. It says, ne plus ultra, which means no more beyond. Because for centuries, that was Spain's motto. We're the end of the earth. There is nothing beyond Spain, until Columbus came along and said, oh no, there's a whole new world you just haven't seen yet. And so that lion is knocking that word nay off the banner because Columbus said there is more beyond. And when you believe and begin to see the world that God sees, then like Elijah, you will finish strong. Which leads to my last and most uplifting thought, that just like Elijah, in God's time, we will get the ultimate rise. Some years ago, people were sending into Ann Lander's stories of minister funeral bloopers where the minister showed up at the wrong funeral or he mispronounced the name the whole time my favorite one lady said the minister was looking down at the casket at the funeral and he said all we have in this box is the shell the nut is gone (laughs) well He might have wanted to mulligan, but actually the theology wasn't that bad. Because you read this story and you think, that's what happens if you're a superhero. You get treatment like Elijah. Wrong. Elijah did not get VIP treatment. His finish was simply a foreshadowing of yours and mine. God's going to do for all of us what he did for Elijah. Just look with me at 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. See, if you die now, we're going to put your body in the ground. Your spirit is going to go to be with Jesus. When Jesus comes back, your spirit's coming with him. Your resurrected body's going to come. And if you're still alive when Jesus comes back, you're going to come up. So either Jesus coming. Uh, with you or he's coming for you but one way or the other you're going to get lifted up you can clap if you want we are a culture of resurrection we recognize the inevitability of death but not 
It's triumph. Because death is not a state. Death is a passage. And that's why I believe that sometimes in those very last moments, God even allows His loved ones to hear the sound of the chariots. Because in His time, God is going to call you and me beyond the Jordan. And in some way, I can already see it. And I find the thought very uplifting. Because some stories are better when you know the finish at the start. And so, Father, I pray now that you would help each one of us to apply this teaching today specifically. For some, it means I'm not ready to live my last day. There's something that needs to change. For some, it means comfort because they're grieving and and they need to receive the ministry of the Spirit who brings hope. And for some of us, God, it means a renewed passion for better vision. We let the myopia of our world put blinders on us and we forget to see the greater reality. So help each one of us, God, apply this teaching the way we most need it today. For Jesus' sake. Amen. And we're going to sing now. And as we sing, I'm going to invite you to encourage each other with your words. And if you haven't been baptized, I'm going to tell you why you need to do that. Because baptism is, among other things, the enactment of your destiny. We are buried with Christ, and the Bible says we are raised to live a life that never dies. We are a resurrection culture. And if you haven't been baptized, you need to join us. Let's stand. You come while we sing.